0: I am going to read Malachi chapter 2, 17 through 3, verse 5, pray, and then see what God has for us. Sound good? All right, well, regardless, that's what we're going to do. not, nice. John 3, 16, please. We'll get there. Malachi writes and says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But, he, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? for judgment, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who tr- thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Let's pray. So Father, now as we look to your word and wrap up uh, what is known to us as the Old Testament, we ask that you would... Continue drawing us closer to you, the God who keeps his covenant, who has steadfast love in abundance, who is still working among your people here in this church in this day. And so you know where we're at. You know what we need. And we ask that you'd meet our need with the truth of your word and the grace of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Another fun fact for those of you who haven't been necessarily following along with this series is we are attempting to alliterate every title, and today is People, Problems. People, Problems. And again, this is one of those generic titles that you could probably put it on any single book of the Bible, because where there are people, there are problems, right? And so as we close out Malachi, we get this unique dialogue between God and his people through this prophet. And the oldest, most hacked out joke of Malachi is he's the Italian prophet, Malachi, because it looks that way, and so there, I gave that gift to you, and I'll just chase that gift with another gift of Anthony and him uh, applying, you know, some boy band over the last, every one of the minor prophets, And, and as I said last time I taught, I tried to revert to something a little, you know, I don't know, Avengers, that didn't work, that joke died, Right on the spot, and it was fun to watch that as everybody looked at me going, that's not funny either. (laughs) And so I'm going to go back yet again to boy bands, and this will be the final one, I think. I don't know what his plans are, you know, for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what, you know, (laughs) assignments are going to go there. And so Malachi is the guy that got kicked out of the boy band uh, for talking to himself. And not that he's crazy, but there's this unique dialogue that happens in Malachi, this question and response of God to his people and God's people back towards him. And I hope that in the midst of all this, and we're looking to cover the whole book today, we got not only the alliterated title, but we're going with more alliteration on the six people problems that there are. Hopefully in this we get clarity and see how the promises of God meet the problems of his people. It is what I would say kind of the last book of the Old Testament. You go, kind of? Kind of. It is in our English Bible, and there's good reason for that, but in the original Hebrew Old Testament, where there I believe were 22 books, it would not be the original ending. I have a picture that I didn't draw there. The books of Tanakh, uh, you see T N K, and K, Torah, Navim, and Ketuvim. So there's the law, the prophets, and the writings. This is what Jesus refers to when he says uh, all of scripture is pointing to him, the law and the prophets and everything within there. Originally, the minor prophets were just known as the Twelve. That was one collection of books where the original ending in the Hebrew Bible was Chronicles. And that's kind of, you know... If I didn't draw that, I stole that from the internet. And so that's the original ending of the Hebrew Bible. And you say, well, why then is it um, the ending to the English Bible? Why didn't we keep that? And there's actually good dialogue and debate around that. Some people prefer this original um, you know, artistic rendering that the Hebrew Old Testament is between the law, the prophets, and the writings. Others prefer this. This is what we have in our English Bible. Why is that? Peter Adam, biblical commentator, he says this, The book of Malachi sits aptly in our Bibles as the last book of the Old Testament, for it looks back to the Old Testament and assumes, summarizes, and applies its message. But it also looks forward to the New Testament with its promises of the coming reign of God. If you are wondering where it falls in kind of the biblical timeline, it comes after exile, Anthony loved the term post-exilic people of God. He mentioned that last word. If you want to just shorten it, PPOG, post-exilic people of God. That's how my mind works. Uh, As I was, oh, post-exilic PPOG. Okay, great. Richard, you're giving me a, a, a disapproving on behalf of Anthony already. Okay, great. I like where this is going. So the message of Malachi comes after exile, and it seems as though, yet again, they had not learned from their time in uh, exile and under God's judgment. The temple's rebuilt. It should be towards worship and health and God's people and their covenant relationship with Yahweh. Yeah, not so much. Amber Dillon from the Bible Project says, the general picture we get from the book is that the long years of Israel's exile did not fundamentally change the hearts of the people. They're still in rebellion against God. The temple is corrupted and the reader is left waiting for some kind of resolution. And that's exactly what Malachi announces. The day of the Lord is coming to purify Israel from all moral compromise and evil so that a faithful remnant can emerge out the other side. While the tone of the book is kind of a downer, it ends with a hopeful note that God will come to one day sort everything out. And that final hopeful note is precisely what makes Malachi a great ending to the Christian Old Testament. But remember, as we talked about earlier, it's not the original ending. That would be Chronicles. And so to get to that ending of chapter four, we need to first go through the interactions and angst and dialogue that happens. And there's this pattern that there's a dispute, a response, a call, God reminding them of what's going on in their world, in their lives, in their hearts. And yet again, we see time after time after time, people, problems. So again, to help you with that, lots of alliteration. First problem, personal relationship. Chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. And then their response. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. So what's going on here? God says, and opens this book, I have loved you. I have loved you. And like no other... Words so meaningful, something that is so deep within our human mind and the history of humanity that we long for this relationship with God. And he says, I have loved you. And they say, how? Peter Adam reflects and says one of the book's most striking features is the way in which every word of God is contradicted or questioned by God's people. This is the deep structure of the book and its recurring theme. Contradicting God and his words was unfortunately characteristic of this contrary people. Whatever God said, they contradicted by questions. So God says, I have loved you. And rather than going, oh yes, Lord, you have, thank you, we see it, they go, how? In what ways? How have you loved us? And God's response, I I found myself struggling with a love-hate relationship with God's response. How have I loved you? He says, well, is not Esau Jacob's brother? And he goes back to the very beginning where he chooses Israel. The twins, Jacob and Esau. Here's what I love, is that God goes, yeah, I have loved you, and he actually responds to them. So number one, that's beautiful. God doesn't just go, forget you, I'm out. He responds, what I hate about it Or struggle with, I should say, and laugh, is that this is characteristic of the minor prophets as well. God's example of his love towards them, he goes back 1,400 years. 1,400 years. Think about that. That's like you saying today, God, or God says, I've loved you. And you go, God, I'm struggling to feel your love. And he goes, Remember the Council of Chalcedon? It was in 451 AD. What? John Chrysostom, you know, old golden-tongued preacher in Constantinople. You remember that? And you're like, what? God takes His people back through the covenant story and His faithfulness to them throughout all time. To get to an understanding of God's love, what He first does with His people is He pulls them back and gives them the most needed gift so often, and that is perspective. I don't know about you, but I often don't need. Every single answer to my question. I don't need every single problem solved, but what I do need is perspective in the midst of that moment. And often, if that is a struggle for you where you go, man, it's just, I can't sense, I can't feel, it's difficult for me to see or pinpoint God's love, what He first does often with us is pulls us back to get a fuller view of history. And he goes, here's how faithful I've been to all my people to get to you. Because without His faithfulness, then we wouldn't have. And now, we wouldn't have that present tense struggle if it wasn't for God's faithfulness throughout the past. And so God faithfully pulls us back and gives us that perspective. Hey, things are bigger than we imagine them. Sometimes he goes deep into the the minuscule, the minute details of our life. And other times he pulls us back. I don't know if you've seen the images from the James Webb telescope over the last couple weeks. For me, that experience is, whoa, I'm real small. You mean to tell me that this is a galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy, and you go, wow, this is a lot bigger. And here I am, here we are, floating on this ball through space, this pale blue dot, uh, you know, and God says, yeah, I have loved you. And my timeline and my example might not be exactly what you want or the warm fuzzies that we often seek inside when we ask those kinds of questions, but he gives us this gift of perspective. So the first people problem that we have is with personal relationship. God, how have you loved us? And what he does is he takes us back and shows us the story. Second problem, priest problems. Chapter one, verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? This is God speaking. And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests who despise my name. Then their contradiction. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you said, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present to that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So they are experiencing priest problems, which again is a reoccurring theme throughout the prophets. That there was corruption in the levels of leadership where they were to offer holy sacrifices, the best of the best, and the priests were letting the people get away basically with um, offerings of the discount rack. And, And it wasn't due to poverty, It wasn't necessarily, hey, we don't have the money, and so, you know, we bought this with food stamps, and this is what we have to offer. It's not that at all. It's them going, we're going to keep the best for ourselves and give the lesser sacrifice, the lesser offering. And the priests facilitated half-hearted worship. The, The problems in their leadership were then trickling down into life. And the phrase that came into my mind is that the, the mediators of the covenant, the priests were called throughout history to be the mediators of God's covenant. They were that go-between. They were to be representatives of God to his people. And what the mediators did is they facilitated mediocrity. Where they were to give uh, a picture and a glimpse of what God was like and, and how worship was to be, they just went, well, the best for yourself we'll keep the best for ourselves they cultivated mediocrity and half-hearted worship and so the call to the priests and the people was repentance and wholehearted devotion and commitment to shepherd god's flock well and they get a very long rebuke and there's repercussions for it and we'll get to more of that but third people problem you take a note so we got personal relationship priest problems profaning marriage in chapter 2 verse 10 through 16 i'll read have we not all one father has not one god created us why then are we faithless to one another profaning the covenant of our fathers judah has been faithless an abomination has been committed in israel and all jerusalem for judah has profaned the sanctuary of the lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob and any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And This is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, again, question, response, dialogue, pushback. Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, The God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So we see some of what Malachi is talking about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that the Israelites had gone outside of what God had instructed them and married foreign women. We don't have all the time to go into this this morning, but what happened again and again is it wasn't that God was being racist or xenophobic, but what he was instilling in his people was that whom you marry really matters, and when the people of Israel went outside of their covenant people, that would lead towards idolatry and and failure and, and dehumanizing tendencies with people. Marriage, what God created to be a covenant, became a commodity, especially for men, which came at the expense of women. And so you can look in the Torah where God uh, institutes basically the framework for divorce. Jesus says later, it's not God's design, it's part of the hardness of your heart. And what God was doing in creating a framework for certain scenarios for divorce was to protect the vulnerable. It was to push against men who would treat women as a commodity, and that is exactly what's happening in Malachi. God put boundaries around who to marry because he wanted to keep and guard his people from idolatry, from dehumanizing tendencies, and keep them within the covenant relationship with him. When they disregarded that, divorce ran rampant. Women became disposable, and it did not reflect the heart of God to the world. And so God sees that, he calls them on it, and asks them to remember the the beautiful mystery that he instituted in this thing called marriage and guard against that. When people do not take God's word for what it is to trust and follow after that, there's dehumanizing, debilitating, destructive tendencies, that follow after that, and we experience it in our world. We'll get more into this in a little bit. So, okay, personal relationship, priest problems, profaning marriage. Fourth thing, God's presence being felt. Verse 17 of chapter 2, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Do you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So you see, as, peop- as God's people had wandered from his covenant, there's all these problems that begin bubbling up. And one of them is that they just say, well, whatever goes, it goes, and God loves you anyways. <laughs> just like, I can struggle with and go, oh, all of our problems today, it's big, it's so much. And it's like, you look through history and you go, there's ebbs and flows to all of the problems that happen throughout history. And our age, though it looks different, sounds different, has different challenges, this is the history of humanity. People go, well, God, he doesn't really care. He's going to love you. And then the second thing is, like, they jump from that, like, well, you can do whatever you want to. Well, then where are you, God of justice? Where's your presence? How is that felt? And God's response to this is unique in that he, he, says he's going to send a person. This is what we read in chapter three, verse one. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into the temple. And again, when when they're questioning, well, where are you, God? Not only does he point them back earlier with the personal relationship question, here's how I've worked through Esau and Jacob and, and my covenant promise to my people, but he also points forward And so as we struggle within the present tense, there's kind of this 3D perspective we need. We need to look back to what God has done in the past. We need to also look forward to what God has promised in the future. And that situates us with faithfulness in the presence. Again, one of the ways they missed out was failing to see the presence of God coming through the prophetic message of Malachi. And so he says, okay, well, here's what I am going to do. And for those of us that struggle with going, God, I want to feel your presence, we often don't want what God's presence can come as. And here in Malachi, it's not necessarily warm, fuzzy, only affirming. God doesn't tell us everything we want to hear, but he shows up as a truth telling prophet who warns, who promises to purify and send a messenger. And that's what we see in John the Baptist as Malachi is prophesying here in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, I I know this alliteration has you hooked. You're like, what's the next one going to be? And I'm so, so proud of this one. Uh, It was shot down by Anthony. It was shot down by my wife. She's like, surely there's a better one. Um, You guys ready for this? It's a big setup, so we have... uh, Personal relationship, we got priest problems, profaning marriage, presence felt. The fifth P, philanthropy problems. And I know that doesn't work, but I was so happy with that. It's got two P's in it, Murph. P, that's not how alliteration works. Prescott High School. Philanthropy problems, okay? It's the fifth P. And Karen's like, you aren't even ending it? There's one after that that's gonna be a normal P? I said, yeah. She's like, that's horrible. Have you heard of a Thesaurus? I said, yeah, I looked. And, it, and it, you know, there are issues with generosity and tithing and all of that. And philanthropy starts with a piece. She's like, that's not how it works. I said, I know that's not how it works. But I find it hilarious. <laughs> You're welcome. Philanthropy problems. Chapter 3, verse 6 through 12. I, yeah, I make fun of myself. This is some of pastor's, uh, certain pastors' favorite verses. And for those of you that grew up in, um, like, heavy-handed giving, uh, you know, shakedown churches with the tithe conversation, uh, I'm not going to do that. So, like, if you have a little bit of PTSD right now, like, I understand. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. For the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, God says, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes. And contributions you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me the whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts if I will not open up the he- windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear says the Lord of of hosts, then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Philanthropy problems. I do not think, personal opinion here, that this was intended for, uh, you know, the, the TBN televangelist call center, tithe storehouse. If you give us two thousand dollars, you're sowing a seed. Were you talking about that? All the sowing a seed language. It's not for that. As this is written to God's people in the Old Testament, it's similar to what Anthony taught on last week in, in Haggai, that there's this disproportionate uh, heart of God's people putting themselves first, neglecting commandments towards generosity towards the temple and the world, and that is having a trickle effect in their lives, their priorities were in the wrong place. They were lacking generosity in this word tithe, as you may have heard, means 10% uh, plus additional contributions. And God's solution for them is to test Him, is to be generous as an act of worship and trust in C. And again, unfortunately, this verse has been just used and abused all sorts, and I don't want to add to that, but I think what's central in this message and what we'll see in Jesus, too, is built into God's people is a life of generosity. Built into our world is a life of selfishness. God says the solution for idolatry when it comes to money is generosity. Generosity. And he says to his people in Malachi, test him on this. And, and I'll just go personal anecdote here. The happiest people that I know are the most generous. The people who seem to give and give and give of their time, of their money, of their, of their talents, just what God has bestowed on them, for those that gift that to the world freely and without strings attached, seem to be some of the most happy people I know. And again, you can listen back to Anthony's sermon last week that was phenomenal on this principle. He quoted from Mark Manson. I wanted to say um, no relation to to Marilyn um, or Charles. Uh, He's an author, but he didn't say that, so I get to say the joke for him. Richard? Yeah? No? (laughs) Still failing. Okay, great. Built into life with God is generosity. And, and the old adage and cliche is, is this, but it's true. It's not that God wants or needs something from us as much as he wants something for us, and that is to be freed from the shackles of idolatry. Again, in this world, we are programmed towards accumulation and selfishness in a hoarding-type mentality when it comes to money, when God programs us to be generous, towards others in the world and again there's a case that can be made of the church being you know there's no more temple and so the church becomes and and my shtick that i give with anybody is i just want you to be generous god is and this is one of the wildest things for me personally is is when we came out of uh the church that i grew up in to plant a church about what is this year 2022 so it was 11 years ago We said we aren't going to pass plates um, and we aren't going to shake people down for money and we're going to trust God to provide. We will talk about giving every single week and once a month we'll update the church on where the finances are and the budget and all of that. And you know what's insane is it's God's just been faithful in that. He's been faithful in that. So that's like there's statistics out there. If you want a church uh, to raise its giving, you you pass plates because people feel guilty and give more about that. Like, there's science and and studies behind that. And I go, okay, well, we're not going to do that for now. And and we haven't needed to yet. Um, If or when there's ever the building campaign, well, no. But that's at least so you know where I'm coming from. God doesn't need my money. God doesn't need your money. You go, great, more for me. Eh, not so much. Test God on that, of being generous towards the world. See what he does. Philanthropy problems. All right, number six, and I need to get moving. Final one, in Malachi, what's the point of it all? All right, point of life. Uh, Chapter three, verse 13 through 18. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What's the profit of keeping his charger walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord, gosh, this is so good, paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him. Of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves them. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So in this section, in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, they have this kind of, it doesn't make sense, the wicked are going to prosper, what's the point of obeying God anyways, And immediately you go, well, I know some really happy people who aren't generous at all, John, so forget that. And I know some people who have followed after the Lord, and their life has been terrible. What about that? The wicked, they seem to just be prospering and making money hand over fist, and they're going to get away with it all. The Psalms have a similar reflection, maybe with a little less snark than Malachi, and the people then have And what God does is he doesn't necessarily directly answer this in the moment, but he hears, he pays attention, and then he makes a whole bunch of promises to them. So when we ask the question, what's the point of it all? And this is what I and I think we need to remember is God doesn't necessarily answer every single question as we have it in the moment, but he does make a load, a boatload of promises To his people, I want to close by. Well, close this out. Gosh, I gotta move along. Chapter four, verse one through six. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. God is saying He will judge. That day is coming. It shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I love the images that God gives his people. This is how stoked you're going to be. You know those baby calves? They're all happy about life, not a care in the world. That's you. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God makes these promises that point to John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. He says he will fulfill his word. He will act for his people. He will give them power for living. And the truth is God has kept his end of the deal. However, as long as there's people, there will be problems. And I've given you six beautifully alliterated points of the various problems in life that we face. Malachi gives us a short sample. The list could go on. And, on. and not every question or scenario is addressed, but the most pivotal is seen, it's known, and it's spoken to. The story of scriptures and the God of this Bible has articulated clearly. And again, if we look back through the lens of history, what we see is God has kept his promise. He, he's patient, he's kind, he is merciful and gracious, he is slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. And I think the struggle for God's people then and for us today is to see how God keeps his promises and press that into the problems of life. To take the problems that we have, that we face internally, externally, as his people together in the midst of the world, we take his promises and we place that into the problems of life and then watch him work as we wait. So how do we do that? Well, I want to, and I'm going to attempt to do this quickly because I feel like I'm talking too much. Richard, thumbs up on that one. (laughs) And I feel like this is one of the the callings that every pastor should have, but uniquely in my life is is the, the... the question that I have as I meet with people as I attempt to to communicate god 's word, is how does the the good news of Jesus fit into the areas of everyday life? You have this big, beautiful, grand story of what God had happened and the, of what God has done and what has happened with his people, and then you have the issues we face in in the call of uh, followers of Jesus is to bridge that cap, that gap and again. Place those promises into the places of everyday life. So I'm going to attempt to do that very quickly through the six issues that Malachi brought up. So personal relationship. We still struggle today. I, we, God says, I've loved you. And we go, how so? Because of whatever reasons that we have in life. Some of our reasons of questioning God's love in our life are, are very, very serious Like, I don't want to take them lightly because what has happened in our lives, what has happened to us, what we have done, what we've experienced, God, where are you, is a valid question for his people. And then there's just silly, you know, kind of temperamental stuff that we deal with. Whatever the case may be, we struggle with personal relationship with God. And so what God calls us to do is see the story of our life in the midst of the long view of Scripture and when we struggle with that personal relationship, God, where have you loved us? We take his promise and we apply it to life. John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Anytime we are sensing God's love lacking in our life, just look at the story and apply the promise to the place. Now, I can promise you this. That may not make the question go away right away. It's not a magic wand that you just go, well, I feel better now. And for those that would use scripture in that kind of trite, temperamental way, like, well, just get over it. There's a verse for that. They don't understand the human experience. And and that's not what God does. But again, what what I'm wanting for us to do is as we have these kind of ruts in our lives, as we experience the problems that people face, that we learn healthy habits of how to apply God's promises to the places of our life. So personal relationships, see his love in the story. Take a step back from your circumstance. Take a step back from your situation. Take a little bit of a longer view and go, He's been faithful. He has been faithful. Priest problems, and you're like, amen, the the pastors and priests, alliteration's dumb. Not helping me out at all. What we see throughout the story of scripture is this, that God sets up mediators of his covenant to be examples to his people, and when they fail, there is judgment. But what the priests are meant to do, and I think pastors play a type of role, though it's different because of Jesus, is that priests are to equip God's people to be salt and light in the world. The priests were never meant to be the center of the story, the center of attention, but they were meant to be equippers of God's people. We get the first example of this in Exodus chapter 19 verse 6, after the Passover, chapters 19, verse 4 through 6. You yourselves, God says, what I have done to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, I brought you to myself. God had redeemed them. He had rescued them. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God, in instructs Moses, then who sets up the priesthood, that will equip God's people in worship of him so that they may be a kingdom of priests among the nations. They may be mediators of God's covenant to the world. Then Jesus comes. Sacrifice is no longer needed because he is the sacrifice. Temple is no longer needed because Jesus is the temple. Jesus fulfills the story, but the plot line is very similar. You say, how so? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Some of my favorite verses in the New Testament. But you, and this is written to the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's the second exodus. It's salvation that Jesus brought through the cross and resurrection. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so where the priests were to equip God's people to be light and salt in the world, then it is the same today that pastors and shepherds today are to equip God's people to be salt and light in the world because we all carry this mantle. There's the priesthood of all believers. Why? So that you, church, can give a display of what God looks like to the world. That's what the church ought to be, a place that equips people in its worship, in its gatherings, to relate to and see and share the good news of who Jesus is to the world. And we, like the children of Israel, have idolatry that get in the way of that day after day that still need to repent, turn to Jesus so that we might show him more accurately. Profaning marriage, again, same today. The call is to understand the beauty and mystery of what God set up in marriage. It's one of those sacred things within Scripture, and one of the reasons that have not uh, defaulted or changed or shifted towards what the cultural view of marriage has become is because it's one of the few things that God gives us is a display of the gospel. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Paul says in Ephesians chapter number five, And so we deal with, just like them, the issue of divorce and profaning marriage. And in that, there is so much grace that God gives. And he calls his people to see the beauty and magnitude of what marriage is, but not making it the ultimate thing. But also within the people, setting up and honoring singleness. Jesus was single to display to the world, again, what God is like. So for marriage, God's heart isn't, for those that are married, just to be, you know, mediocre, miserable. Whenever I officiate a a marriage, I, I give a little bit of where it comes from in Scripture and just highlight to the couple and to people and remind myself that marriage comes before the fall, meaning God completely intended it to be a blessing and a joy. He didn't wait for Adam to mess up, Eve to mess up, and go, well, I know how to make them miserable. Marriage. (laughs) The old ball and chain. Let's invent that. No, it's this thing that is meant for the good of his people and flourishing within the world. So where we experience troubles and tribulations within relationship, for those of you that are single and desiring to be married, you don't make marriage the ultimate thing. For those of you that are Happy and single, then you can resist all the married people going, Well, who do you like? And like, we can elevate marriage to where it should be, is this beautiful mystery that is meant to display the love of Christ towards His church. And when we experience problems, we remember it's a covenant, we remember it's not disposable, it's not a commodity, and we look to honor one another in that. God's presence being felt. Where's His presence? Well, you see through Acts, and we'll look at this, that he has sent his spirit among his people to empower them for life today. And there's no magic formula that can be concocted to bring the presence of God among the people. At least, I, I don't believe. You can see there's plenty of formulas for that, again, within church worlds, and joking with Anthony about how camps can <laughs> manipulate kids with that. And it's like, wow, well, we got to dim the lights, and we got to set the music, and I don't know. God has promised to send his spirit among his people, and so if you are in Christ, you have all the benefits and the promises of his spirit to empower you for life. And and the two ways in which I believe that God has shown himself in his glory and, and his presence is felt is through his world and through his word. And, and, I, and for some of you, you're, you're bookie types, and so you experience God's presence in his word, and you go, I'm alive, you read the Psalms, whatever. Some of you are like, I don't feel it in church, I don't feel it. I just need to go outside. Well, the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth shows forth his handiwork. So God has given us these dual gifts in which we can experience and feel his presence among us. More could be said, but time's running. Now, philanthropy problems. You're like, man, yeah, I'm so excited about that one. I've already covered that. Be generous. What's the point of life? Well, it's this. God reigns. The wicked are going to be judged. He will come, rescue his people, and one day dwell with them fully. That's the book of Revelation. We will get there. So this, my friends, is the end of the Old Testament. And what they experienced then is that where there's people, there are going to be problems. And how God meets his people in their problems is he gifts them with promises of what he's done, of what he's going to do and his desire for them of having a rich relationship with him and one another in the present tense. So my hope for you is that as you evaluate your life, kind of just take stock of who you are, where you are, what's going on, what troubles you're experiencing, that you would see God and gently apply his promise and his goodness where you are today. Let's pray. And so Father, we're thankful that you have kept your end of the deal. You have sent your Son who we see and love, who has died for us to forgive us of sins, who has rescued us and put us into this family and is equipping us to display your heart to the world. And we confess that we need your help. We still struggle with Idolatry, we still struggle with um, the pain of life and the problems we face, some of us emotionally, some of us mentally, some of us physically, relationally, and our families. God, there are problems that abound, and we thank you that you are the one who sees those problems and does not discard them, and you meet them with a tenderness and a gentleness that we We struggle to see because it's so foreign to our experience today. And so I pray you would refresh our view of who you are and how you've worked in history and that you would give us the wisdom, discernment, and you would help us with one another to place and press your promises into the problems of our lives. We thank you that's not just simply an individual mandate, but you call us to do that together as a family. And so we love you, and we thank you, and we ask you to continue your work in our hearts as we respond now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.